what happened to our musical intro, Rich? I'm not excited for the musical intro. I mean, what, what should we have played? What would be your favorite you, song? Uh, Clap your hands. Something, <laughs> no one, something that no one believes about me. I really don't know music at all. So I just need to hear it. I don't know. We could do like Rocky. Or we could do like Dreams and Nightmares. I don't know. We could, uh, I don't know. Um, I can't help you on music. Rich. Clap your hands. <laughs> <everybody>. <laughs> Thanks, thanks for the serenade, Walt. <laughs> I mean, I told Rich to. I told Rich to cue this up. How hard is this? Uh, we do this I'm, to our let's, podcast. Let's just hope next season ends with that song. <laughs> Going to uh, Brandon. Why don't you kick us off? Well, want to first of all thank you, Michael, for joining us. You are playing a very important part in the sports ecosystem um, at this point, and have now for several years. And not a lot of our investors, at least, know a ton about fanatics and want to get to know you better, especially as your importance grows and you add business lines to your core business. But why don't you just start off by giving everyone kind of the background on fanatics, how you came to start the business and what your goal was um, from the outset? Yeah. So first, guys, thanks for having me. It's a honor to be with you guys. I've heard great things about the show and I know you guys have uh, you know such, such a great audience. So it's my uh, privilege to be here. You know, for me, I started, you know, I started Fanatics actually almost 20 years ago as part of my first company, GSI Commerce, that was acquired by eBay. But when eBay bought GSI in 2011, Fanatics was a pretty small company. I bought it back and really, that's when I got serious about the business. And really what I saw was um, a few things. One, I saw an opportunity to really build a very uh, differentiated uh, direct-to-consumer um, licensed sports business. But at the same time, I also saw huge risks against retailers and huge risks against, um, you know, many companies if they couldn't differentiate themselves against companies like an Amazon or an Alibaba. So beginning in 2011, when the company just got finished, you know, only $250 million in revenue, we set out to completely differentiate the company and really build the largest direct-to-consumer, um, you know, licensed sports you know, seller merchandise. And, um, you know, I'll say 12 years later, we've made a little bit of progress to that. We're having a lot of fun. You know, we built a business becoming pretty global. And, um, you know, there's there's multiple parts of the business today. And the most exciting thing is I feel like we just get started. And obviously, as we dive in, I'll tell you more about the business. You, t- you used the word differentiated a couple of times, probably like three times in that answer. What differentiated Fanatics versus the other retailers? in the sports merchandise business. Yeah. So first, my I had a simple belief watching my old company, GSI Commerce, that operated most, if not all aspects of big retailers and big brands e-commerce businesses. I watched companies like Amazon and Alibaba really decimate them. And so the idea of not being differentiated seemed like a way to just die. And so when I started in 2011, I said, okay, if we don't have unique merchandise if we're not vertical, if we can't do special things with a fan, why is everyone going to come to Fanatics or go to the league stores like the NFL shop or the NBA st- store that we operate? We need to be very differentiated. So, you know, what do we do? We build out over, you know, a million SKUs of product, you know, this incredible, you know, assortment of merchandise that you really give any sports fan whatever they want, for whatever team, whatever player, whatever product. And a lot of that product was also vertical, like a Lululemon or an H&M or a Zara. And so that really completely differentiated the business. And I'd say, had we not done that, I wouldn't be with you today because we won't be here because um, the business would have been, you know, kind of, you know, taken over by some of the e-commerce, you know, killers like an Amazon and Alibaba that I have huge respect for. But we really showed the sports properties that there was a better way to do this, that we could create a direct-to-consumer business, that we could do it that was more profitable for them, more profitable for us, and most importantly, great for sports fans. Maybe you can talk about um, the relationships with the leagues and and how those evolved, started and evolved over time. Yeah. So first, we have relationships today with close to a thousand sports properties. That's the professional sports leagues, the players association, professional sports teams, collegiate sports teams, and we do that you know globally as well, from you know football you know globally to you know NFL in America. You know we have generally 
deep and long relationships. Really what we've showed sports properties is this was a business that nobody cared about a decade ago. It wasn't an important business to them. Um, and they didn't make a lot of money from it. And they didn't have any strategic benefit. What we said is, look, if you build this direct-to-consumer, if you do it with unique and exclusive merchandise, one, you can get a much bigger rate of the revenue to yourself. Two, would be a better business from us. And three, you can get a tremendous amount of customer data that you can use to drive other pieces of the business. So I'd say we have very long and exclusive partnerships with basically you know, most of the sports properties that we work with today. Um, we've been in business with these businesses, you know, these properties for a, a long time already. You know, many of them, you know, 15, 20 years. And, um, you know, really, you know, we're partners with most properties and, you know, they, they see this the best way to, to service their fan and really build a business. And what they've done is talk about a business that when we started 10 years ago, I think we were paying the leagues, I don't know, 20 or $30 million. I think we'll pay the sports properties $1.2 billion next year in, in royalties. So this has become a meaningful revenue source to these sports properties. And at the same time, you know, our business next year, just in the first original category we started in, which is merchandise, which is only one third of our business today from a you know category perspective, yep. um, that's going to be close to, a, it'll be about a $7 billion business next year. Is Fanatics a consumer brand? Like, do you, like, do people know Fanatics? Do you want them to know Fanatics? Obviously, um, I'm sitting here in your uh, company merch, but like, do pe- do you want consumers to know that Fanatics is the brand behind all of this merch? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm gonna tell you something. When I started this, um, you know, really got serious with it ten years ago when I, you know, bought the business back from eBay. I go see one of my friends. They say, "Hey, what are you doing?" I'd say, "Oh, I have you know a few companies I'm working with. I have Fanatics. You know, I have Rulala." They say, "Oh, Rulala, my wife buys from that. What's Fanatics?" I get asked Fanatics all the time. No one asks me what's Fanatics anymore. Um, so, you know, for us, you know, we operate, you know, 900 sites. Fanatics is the biggest individual site we operate. It's about one third of our total revenue is under the Fanatics brand. But then if you go to the NFL shop, it says buy Fanatics. If you go to the NBA store, it's buy Fanatics. If you go to MLB store, it's buy Fanatics. NHL store, buy Fanatics. Notre Dame, buy Fanatics. So if you go to the New England Patriots store, it's buy Fanatics. So each of the stores we operate are buy Fanatics. But then Fanatics is our kind of flagship store where you can buy everything. Do you want people though, like ultimately, like is the ultimate goal to shop on Fanatics app or to use a Fanatics app? Or do you not care whether they're on NFL shop or on an, an NBA website? Like what, what, where do you want people? Like ultimately, do you become that sports destination where people do everything? Yeah. So first of all, I think we're in the early stages of becoming that sports destination today. And remember, if you think about our business, we started in the merchandise business, which is where the direct consumer merchandise business. Today, we have three businesses. We have, you know, what we call commerce, which is really anything consumer products related. Then we have collectibles, which is both physical and digital collectibles. And then we have gaming, which is online sports betting and iGaming. You know, from my perspective, you say, what's this going to look like in five years? You're going to be able to go to Fanatics and you'll be able to watch certain sports live. You'll be able to um, buy merchandise, buy a trading card physically and digitally. You'll be able to, you know, place a bet in the game. You can do it all in one place. So I think ultimately, Fanatics is already the biggest destination today, and every day gets bigger. By the way, we've already served. We have close to 100 million customers in our database today. We didn't have a database 10 years ago when we, when we separated ourselves from eBay. So it's, you know, it's certainly a growing brand, but we're just getting started. I feel like we're in the first inning of the game. Right. How do you decide? which, I mean, you're adding these additional businesses on kind of to the, I'll call it, you know, to the fanatics wheel, right? Yeah, absolutely. How do, you, how do you decide which businesses you want to attack first? I guess the ones that you've, you've added on so far are trading cards. And I think we should probably get deeper into that at some point and also sports betting. Why, why those? And what could you do differently in those businesses that incumbents cannot do? Sure. So the first question you asked is kind of how do we pick a category to get into? So if you look long-term again, what do we think about Fanatics long-term? We want to have the kind of the sports soup wrap where you can go to Fanatics, you can do anything digitally that you want to do, whether it's getting merchandise, collectibles, whether it's watching certain live sports, whether it's betting on sports, whether it's other businesses that we haven't even thought about today, um, all that's going to happen at Fanatics long-term. For us, prioritization is hugely important. 
the number one thing that I screwed up, and by the way, I screwed lots of things up. But the number one thing I screwed up with my old company was I did too many things not well enough. So when I think about today, you know, what business do we want to be and not be? And you need to pick this business very carefully. So what we generally say is number one, is it a really big opportunity? If we can't make a billion dollars of EBITDA from a business, we don't even want to be in it. Okay. So it's got to be a big TAM. Number two, if it can't be completely differentiated for the sports fan, where they're getting a better experience, we don't want to be in the business. So if someone comes to me and says, like, look, I'll give you an example of a business that everyone thinks we're going to get into. And like, we'd love to find a way to serve our customers, but I'm not excited about it. It's like ticketing. If you look at the whole TAM of ticketing, they make a billion dollars in profit. Ten guys are beating their, each other's brains out. It's a low margin business. And yes, do I want people to get their tickets on my platform? Sure. Because I want those, day, those customers to transact there. Do I really want to be in the ticketing business? I got a lot better things to do with my time than to, to go fight with Michael Rapino, who's an animal yeah. piece, and to go <laughs> fight with StubHub, that's a great company, and to go fight with Vivid Seats, and go fight with the 17 other startups. Like, they're killing brain cells for not a lot of reward. You know, when I think about businesses that we're in, you know, today, our merchandise business you know, is, you know, next year be a $7 billion business with, you know, you know, you know, call it 10%-ish EBITDA margins. And we think we can triple that business. So we're sorry, we can probably double the business over the next five or seven years, and probably, you know, three to four X the, the profitability. So that's a, it's a big opportunity. It's one where we have a great market share. We're very special. We're very differentiated. Think about the collectibles business. That's another example today where we have, you know, tremendous differentiation. I think in game, we're going to do that over time. So I'm not interested in being in an undifferentiated business where we can't make real money and really service the fan well. Again, There's a lot of things I don't want to do. I, again, you use the word differentiated. And when it comes to... One of my to, favorite words. Ours too. How many times we use differentiated <laughs> here. But if it ain't differentiated, we're not doing it. Right. But in, in uh, collectibles, in trading cards, what... Are you doing specifically that differ that will differentiate you from the incumbents like Tops? And what will change the industry yeah, under sure. under your control? Sure. So everything is probably the first thing. Um, so first, we own Tops today. So what happened for us is think about when we designed the original Fanatics business model. What we said is, look, a sports property can go direct to consumer, working together with fanatics. And the way it used to work is the sports property would license the rights to a wholesaler or a manufacturer. We then sell that merchandise to a retailer. We then sell it to a consumer. There were kind of four parties in the middle of it. And today, what we did is by us, you know, kind of partnering with the sports properties, we went direct to consumer as the primary distribution channel with, you know, a really wide assortment of merchandise that was a much better experience for consumers and also cut out parties within the the ecosystem. If you think about the trading cards business, the way this worked historically is a sports property licensed the rights to a trading card company that then sold that merchandise to a distributor, that then sold that merchandise to a retailer, who then sold it to a, um, a you know, somebody ran into the retail and bought it, then put it on eBay to sell it to another collector. So we're like, there were literally like seven people in the middle. What we said is, look, hobby shops are always critically important to the, the trading card business. Breakers that do online breaking, critically important, but these distributors aren't as important. So in a lot of cases, we could bypass the distributors and service directly the hobby shops and the retailers. In a lot of cases, we could, um, you know, service, you know, collectors directly. And so we created a model that aligned all, all the, you know, economics with these sports properties. And we basically set up a new company where all the player associations and the leagues Many properties contribute their rights into this new company. There's going to be much more direct to consumer and better service collectors, better service hobby shops, better service, um, you know, breakers. And so it's a much more direct mindset, which is exactly what we did in our first model. And look, to put this in perspective, just the rights that we've acquired today, that we own today, you know, our existing trading card business, you know, and the rights we have today, it's about a billion dollar EBITDA business today. Uh, that's what the rights that we own under contract today. So people don't understand the size and scale. This is, it's a big and profitable business. Michael, how did that come about? Because I just think about like, I mean, as a kid, my dad used to buy boxes of tops and fleers and all that crap. So, but at some point, the leagues, did I understand this right? That they just stopped using tops. And then like, so how did that whole kind of 
transition yeah, so the way, maneuvering the way it works today go down. Is a sports property um, or a players association will license their rights to whether it's a company like Fanatics or Nike to make a jersey, whether it's EA to make a video game, yep. whether it's ESPN to, to put a football game on TV, whether it's you know um, Panini or Tops to make a trading card. And so they generally have terms. So they're different than when you say TV rights move around. There's always terms of these agreement. And so we went to each of the sports properties and showed them this new model, more direct, much more profitable, yep. much more customer data, great for hobby shops, great for the brick and mortar retailers. But and again, Tops didn't know that you were, this is, I assume, when Tops had those existing yeah, deals. Yeah, Tops and Benini had all the rights. And they had no idea you were meeting with them and didn't try and... There was nothing they could do to stop it because our idea was so much better. We had such a better strategic roadmap that if you're a sports property, if you're Rob Manfred, or you're Tony Clark from the MLB Players Association, you're D. Smith, you're Tamika runs the NBA Players Association. I'm so you're like, wow, this model is so much better. I'm in a better service my hobby shops and breakers and retailers like Walmart, I'm going to um, better service my collectors that actually are yeah. the end owners. I'm going to make a lot more money get all this customer data. It was a no brainer. And so once we got all these rights, then top said, look, we're kind of, you know, we have four years left. Why don't we sell the business to you? And then we bought tops. Yeah. <laughs> well, on, on, I'm sure on they January. had to at that point. So what, I'm sure they had to at that point. That's kind of like, uh, you know, like what it, else it was certainly the best outcome for um, their shareholders. Their How do you prevent that from happening property. to you? I mean, what's the length of your contract and what do you think you've left in terms of new developments that someone else could do the same thing to you? Yeah. So our contracts, so you give you an example in baseball, we have 23 years left. Uh, so it's a short-term deal. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like a tower deal. Holy yeah, cow. I, I, I Better than, that, are there I escalators? That, I think the NFL Players Association is 24 years left to give nice. you an example. Um, so you know, look, what we generally try to do is to create the right model that people really buy into. I think you can, I think you, Michael, I think you can stop at a 23 year deal and we can go on to the next question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, crazy. Obviously, trading cards is physical uh, primarily today. And there's a lot of um, talk of sort of how it evolves. I know you sort of started during, I think during the pandemic, you started Candy Digital and sort of have been sort of figuring out what the future of memorabilia looks like. How does Tops and what you, you know, that whole wild story of sort of what you've been able to achieve in a very short time, how does it fit together? Like, I know there's two separate businesses, but how do you see that all coming together in terms of the, the future of collectibles? Yeah. So the way Fanatics operates today is there's three businesses. There's kind of what I call our consumer products business, all the merchandise that's a, we call it a $7 billion business, you know, at, you know, what we sell the merchandise for next year. There's the collectibles business. That includes all physical and digital trading cards. That includes tops. That includes candy, all within that collectibles business. And then there's the gaming business, which includes online sports betting and iGaming. So the way we think about the, um, the, 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 the kind of digital trading cards is we think long-term, you know, there's great value in the NFT market. Today, everything's happened in the NFT market is exactly what we predicted would happen. If you look back to public things I've said, I said, you know, kind of most of these projects will fail. People are, you know, there's there's too much product coming. There's not enough fans yet. But it's the same thing I publicly predicted on the online sports betting market a year ago. I told all of our investors, many that are probably on this call today, that none of this made sense in the U.S., which is too obvious. You just had to bring a calculator out and do a little bit of math. And you got to a pretty, uh, pretty, you know, pretty quick, uh, you know, you know, set of outcomes that told you what was happening didn't make any sense. So for us, you know, we think, the NFT market long-term makes a lot of sense. We think that you need to do it together. It's, it's one business. You know, if you really think about, um, you know, today we have actually two separate NFT businesses. We have what came with Tops when we bought it, with the Tops NFT business, with the Candy NFT business. They're very small businesses. They're, you know, to put it in perspective, it's, you know, 2% two, two of revenue. But like we look at NBA top shots and no offense to what the product that's been created, but there isn't a lot of utility to it from a consumer standpoint. Like I, I, I agree. I, I agree, which is why we didn't think it would do great, which is why, you know, we think you want to marry physical and digital products together and add utility to the digital products. So, so that's what I wanted to get at. What could you help us understand? We don't yet understand. What does utility look like for, you know, sports related NFTs? Sure. Uh, I think in the future, you could think about, you know, when you, when you get a physical and digital trading card to come together, do you get to do FaceTimes with your favorite player? Do you get to do dinners, you know, you know, w- you know, in groups, you know, can you do different sporting events that you can do? Could you come to the, you know, 
I'll give you an example. The MLB, you know, um, All-Star game in two weeks, you know, Finax was the biggest party there. You know, do you get to come to the Finax party, meet lots of players? Do you get to, you know, play in the celebrity All-Star game for certain, certain people? There's so many things we have because, you know, we're going to spend over a billion dollars with sports properties this year. Um, there's such a great ability for us to get different, you know, utilities and add to our products that I think other companies can't do. And also, if you think about it, we spend $200 million, you know, kind of, you know, kind of with athletes. So think about the ability to use that spend to then, you know, get more of that. How do we not just get, you know, athletes to sign products, but to do marketing things for fanatics, to do different things for our collectors and customers. So great opportunity for us to improve where we are. Is there an NFT that gets you into that white party you had? There will never be an NFT for that. that, that was, there's no, and there's no amount of money you can buy. And you can't even sneak in. This year we kept, we caught multiple people. We had, we had a strong security team. They caught multiple people trying to sneak in through the bushes, through the beach. I mean, there was the, 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 the attempts. Who are, was uh, it? Who who was was John Ledger? Was one of the one people trying to break in there? I I, I didn't I didn't ask for the names of the people, but I, I heard some of the things they tried. There were definitely some good uh, there were some good attempts for sure. I, I, by the way, something I would have tried 25 years ago too. Yeah, that was a, that now. was a Walt Telecom joke. He he always has a no, Telecom it's joke. Ex, it's the ex CEO of T Mobile. He used to bust into like T Mobile or uh, AT and T's parties and things like that. So, uh, believe it or not, I actually knew who it was and I actually knew the story. <laughs> there you go, Brandon. <laughs> All right, you win. Um, so sports betting, we've had Matt King on Lightshed Live in the past, um, was a big hire for you guys out of FanDuel. That business, though, I mean, as we've analyzed it, is such a competitive business. Um, it seems like a real commodity business where offers and marketing are really winning the day and scale. How do you make your imprint on that business and make it more importantly, make it into a good business for yeah, you and differentiated and differentiated. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get, getting back. I think we're going to ask this question when we, for every opportunity and how do you differentiate? Yeah. So first my view, so I went to our board of directors and we have, you know, a lot of great investors, Silver Lake, SoftBank, Tomasek, Insight. I went to our board in March of 20 of, of 21 and I laid out, I said, let me give you my views on the sports gaming market. I said, internationally, there's tons of money made online. In the U.S., there's tons of money made offline. I said, the U.S. online business makes no sense today. It just doesn't make economic sense. Why? Three reasons. One, way too much money being spent in marketing. Two, way too much money being spent in incentives. And three, um, the fixed overhead, because people are going so quick and because investors were giving them money for free, it didn't create kind of a disciplined build the way it did internationally over a long period of time or offline in the U.S. over a long period of time. So our view was we love this market long term. We hate it in the U.S. in the near term. That's what we told our board 15 months ago. Um, if only we would have taken our own personal investment advice, we would have. Uh, but by the way, we, we, and we told many of our outside investors. I mean, there are probably, again, several people on here that we, we gave that same thesis to. Could have um, been short. Yeah. And, and look, we, we told people how we felt. And it was. It wasn't any one company. Like, you look, there are a lot of people in the space. You know, DraftKings, Jason Robin is a great entrepreneur. I love him. He's a buddy of mine. Um, but just if you just look at the math of it and say, what's being spent in marketing versus the international guys and the offline guys, what's being spent in incentives when you compare against the two, it just doesn't make economic sense. And so our belief was long-term, there's going to be a really big TAM, right? Probably $50 billion TAM in the US online. Probably should be 20% profit, so probably a $10 billion profit pool. And so we like that. You know, merchandise, we might say, hey, you know, there's not $10 billion of profit in selling sports merchandise. You know, maybe there will be or won't be in, in, in collectibles. But in, in gaming, we saw the, the TAM, the, the profit pool. I think that's what investors got excited about. What they missed was that if they added up everyone they were invested in, they had about 1,000% of the market, and they were giving up so much money and such crazy valuations, it could never make sense. So our belief is, one, we have a brand. It's definitely the most transactional sports digital brand. People come into Fanatics every day. They know the brand. Two, we have a big, you know, we, we have a, you know, close to 100 million fans say we own those customers. We have a relationship with those customers. So that's a huge advantage. Three, what do we have a history of doing? In the direct to, you know, consumer merchandise business and the collectibles business, we reinvented the model, found a way 
to, as we said, differentiate the model. So look for us to not only leverage our brand and our database, but also over time to do things that differentiate it, not only from a product perspective, which I think does get commoditized, but from one of the things you can do work with the sports properties. And by the way, that's players, that's leagues, that's players associations. There's a lot to do over time. But just the advantage we have from a brand and acquisition perspective is massive because of the size of our database. I think that it kind of gets back to what Rich asked at the beginning, which was, does your consumer brand really matter? Because if it, if it does, then you become that destination for sports and your CAC, your acquisition costs will theoretically be lower. But if you're not, do you really have an advantage? Yes. So great, great question. So we've asked our customers, we've surveyed a large, statistically accurate number of customers, uh, more than half our customers gamble on sports today. And I think the number was uh, of, of all the customers that gamble on sports, say 60% would do it with us. Um, and so great feedback. We also have so many great ways to cross sell that other people couldn't do. Think about you go and you buy a Tom Brady jersey and you say, do you want to bet on this game? Do you want, so there's, there's so many different ways that we can, you know, kind of, you know, kind of integrate the uh, experience between gaming and collectibles and merchandise. It's, you know, truly extraordinary. All right, let's go to the Q&A, and both are just follow-ups on this. I mean, it's basically pushing back and just saying... Push uh, back away, please. Uh, <laughs> first off, uh, don't these customers already have FanDuel DraftKings accounts? And then secondly, um, you know, in terms of the differentiation in the databases, everyone, not everyone, others have large databases. You're going to be late to market in many states. How do you think about uh, market access in, in limited licensed states? Sure. So let me attack each of those questions one at a time. So first, I'd say our database is about 100 million fans. I think the next biggest database is probably 10 million fans from a FanDuel DraftKings, if you put that in perspective. So I'd say our database is, you know, extraordinarily larger from the size of the database. Um, you do, many of these people have accounts. I think about, you know, probably 40% of the opportunity has been, you know, you know, kind of uh, realized so far. If you say, like, how big is this market going to be? It's probably 40% so far. So lots of people have accounts with DraftKings, FanDuel. You know, I'll give you a great example. You know, if you look at like Foxbet in uh, in Europe, you know, they, they were the late comer and they became the largest in Flutter now owns it. They became the largest market share owner um, over time. They weren't first in the market. They were actually one of the later people in the market. But what they have is a real strategic advantage. They used to become the market share, you know, leader over time. Market access, you know, people have the wrong perception about there's generally you know, market access has never been less expensive than it is today. Why? Because a year ago, when investors were giving free money to companies, everyone's going to be doing stupid deals for market access. Today, you know, 80% of these companies have gone away. So, you know, if you look at the, uh, the cost of market access today, it is substantially cheaper today than it is a year ago. So if we look at a deal we're going to do right now, over one year ago, when I made our presentation to our board in March 2021, said this market makes no sense, the cost of market access was very expensive. I can tell you, in the U.S., we can go to every state other than New Hampshire, Connecticut, um, and um, Oregon um, is kind of open. And the only state we don't want to go to is New York because you can't make money. If you pay 51% taxes with no um, incentives, uh, you can't deduct the incentives. There's just no way to make money. So I prefer a business of just getting market share to lose money. It's not something I'm interested in. So other than that, you can get market access in every state. It's never been less the cheapest time to do it is right now in the history and, of online sports. And by cheap, is it does it make sense to the go the rate after, and the minimum guarantee? Right. So, what about just buying some of these companies that are problematic? Is is it you don't buy them because they've got rates that you just wouldn't want to own? Or so that's I think less of this. Look for us, we have a big history of M and A. Right. If you look today, I think we bought eight companies within the consumer products business. We bought um, you know tops within the the collectibles business. We like M and A. But we also have to be comfortable that the business we're buying is worth the investment. We need to think it's a good trade. So if you don't see me buy something, that means I don't like it. At the price. Right. So where is that balance? I mean, you know, we see this obviously in a lot of different industries, that balance of build versus buy today. Are you sitting there saying like, look, there might be better opportunities coming three to six months down the road. Are there good opportunities now? How, how do you weigh that build versus buy debate that many, many yeah, so, so have? Look, look, I think we like the international from an from an MA perspective today, we like the international markets better. You know, I'd say we think there's opportunities internationally. 
I said we don't think there's opportunities to buy domestically today that make economic sense for us. So if you saw spending M&A dollars, they'd be where we do a multiple of EBITDA that we thought made sense outside of the U.S. Those examples don't exist in the U.S. What we're currently doing today, I'll just be completely transparent, is we've got an investment we're making. It's measured in the low hundreds of millions of dollars to kind of create an option value in the U.S. to kind of really, you know, you know, get market access everywhere, build a great product, leverage our own database. But we're not yet turning on the gas fuel yet because we think there could be M&A opportunities that aren't inexpensive. The prices still need to come down for us. So the question that came in, and I think it sort of ties to what you just were talking about, Michael, it's what needs to change in the sports betting market for you to green light the hundreds of millions of required investment to be relevant. And uh, yeah, I guess you're sort of hinting at, you're, you're starting to lay the groundwork, but is there something specific regulatory wise or the collapse of some of these companies that you're waiting for to really put the pedal down. Yeah. And so, first of all, we are very strategic about this. We talk about it every day. You know, we're not, if we publicly commit to a business, that means we're going to be in this business in a big way. We've said we want to be the number one player in this business in a decade from now. We, you know, we are the number one player in all types of like sports merchandise. We're the number one player in collectibles. Um, you know, we're irrelevant today in online sports betting and eye gaming. And we have the ambitions to be the number one player here. I can tell you, I am telling you that we like the global markets. I can look at, Many companies, some that have been rumored, some that have not, that we think are interesting companies internationally. We think they trade reasonable multiples. If you look at that average multiple of a international gaming t- company today, they might be eight or ten times profit. Okay, I can get my head around when someone says a multiple profit is a, a concept that I like. Okay, then you put it into my platform and you say, okay, now I can sell that customer merchandise. I can sell that customer um, collectibles. You know, or I can take my collectibles and merchandise customers and sell them gaming. So that's that that's a concept I really understand. In the US today, there aren't businesses that we think that make sense to buy at current valuations that they're at today with what we get for it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, get market access everywhere. Again, it's, it's never been cheaper than it is today. And the best deals you can do are right now. And we're going to um, you know, leverage our brand and our database and build a great product. And then we'll wait till the market continues to rationalize. And it will. Because and guess what? The best thing's happening for finance right now. We love the stock market. Okay. We like red. Okay. I like the color of your shirt. I like the color of our logo. That's good stuff for us because the more that happens, it makes that creates opportunities when you're a market. You, you leader, did not send me a green shirt, I noticed. We did not send you a green shirt. But it wasn't that wasn't by design, it was by It love. wouldn't work on the green screen, Rich. So um, do you need as part of that, do you need a content strategy? Because we, you know, we talk about this in our podcast a lot and you know, we see what Portnoy does, um, you know, there and, and, you know, I got $3,000 to, for Caesars and I took my $3,000 out. So I'm basically pay, playing with house money. And that seems to be the historical differentiation. Shouldn't content be another reason to win and have people come to whatever sports betting platform you're going to build? So few things. So one, we like the bar student model. Okay. If you look at their business, they have a I don't know, $500 million gaming business today that breaks even, okay? And I think there's nobody else in the U.S. that has an online business of scale that breaks even other than Penn Gaming, okay? So I think I give them a check for, you know, coming up with something that's different. Now, Dave's obviously, some people love him, some people hate him. He's a complicated human being, you know? So, you know, for fanatics, we look at, you know, and by the way, I, have, I happen to love David, appreciate him, even though he's mad at me right now. But I happen to, 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 to love I think Dave. He, he seems to be mad at a lot of people right now. Well, he's, he's mad at me because I won't let him come to my, my party last weekend with he wanted to bring 17 people and he didn't understand. <laughs> well, he, he's also been known to break into things as well. So maybe he was one of the he, he wasn't able to do That didn't work either. He got to, he, he, yeah, that, that didn't work for me either. So you better no, hope I, there's no I, shirt made of you now. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it'll all be with a love because I have nothing but love for Dave. Um, I, and I mean that sincerely. And by the way, you know, he works with a guy, Jay Snowden, who I also have a lot of love for. So I think. Dave and Jay together, they have a good model. They're leveraging content to um, drive customer acquisition costs. I think we have a much better model for Fanatics. You know, we have 100 million fans that we talk to um, at Fanatics, and I think that's a huge strategic advantage. And we don't have any of the complexity. So that's why what made us get into sports gaming, size of the TAM, relationships with all the sports properties, our brand and our database advantage that we have. You know, so we get really excited about that long term, but that doesn't mean because we're excited, we're going to go spend a billion dollars in the U.S. or two billion dollars in the U.S. In the near term, it might say, hey, we might start internationally and do and buy a few companies that we think are great companies that 
eight or 10 times EBITDA or 12 times EBITDA, you know, just buy things that are, you know, you know, good businesses that we believe in the teams and, you know, give us a foundation that we can take our other products and, you know, grow on top of that there. Will we wait for this market to more normalize? Here's the question we should be asking. What's a online sports betting and iGaming business worth long-term? And I would say, if you look at the multiples of what they trade at internationally, it's going to be the same multiple here long-term. So you got to back into that and say, when do you want to put your capital to work? Relative, if, it's, if the average multiple is 10 times, then you got to do the same thing in the U.S. and say, okay, well, what are, what, if I think it's going to be worth 10 times in you know, seven years, what's it going to make? And then how do I back into that? What's worth the investment? And that's the way we think about it. So to answer your question about content specifically, look, we are doing a lot today, okay? I wake up, you know, I'm a very light sleeper. I'm a very paranoid human being. I worry about everything. Um, you know, like we can't do more than we're doing right now. We are, you know, building a strong, you know, primarily direct to consumer, um, you know, merchandise business. We're building a, you know, physical and digital collectibles business, uh, online sports betting, iGaming business. Like we're not looking to go do five new things right now. We're looking to really support those three businesses everywhere shape form possible long term if you're asking me does content fit for us yes perfectly okay you know and you think about the ability to leverage that content like the example you used with port and jay snowden you know if, if you have if we're showing a live game then you could say hey do you want to buy that person's jersey do you want to get the training card do you want to get their you know do you want to bet on the game do you want to bet within the game that's of course great for us within our ecosystem but, you know, we need to do smart deals. There's only so much we can do at once. So do we think it makes a lot of sense for us long-term? Absolutely. Are we in any rush to enter that market? It could be years till we get there. Probably will be years till we get there, honestly. Got it. Jeff has a good question here, which is going to lead me to another one in a second. But I'll ask it as, as he wrote it, which is the sports betting landscape can change at any time if there is perception by the leagues that it is corrupting their core product. How do you weigh that risk to your business as you consider capital allocation to the wagering business? Yeah. So, so first, I think um, sports betting has been a huge business in the U.S., for a long period of time. What the league said it was smart. We said, you know, if it's going to be here, we're going to do it in a way that's safer for fans, better for fans. I think everyone remembers Adam Silver's big letter in the New York Times, whatever, five or seven years ago, when he said, we have to do this, we have to do it the right way, the safe way, the better way, which, by the way, is just copying what's been done internationally, okay? Now, what will happen, and people haven't even started talking about it here, let's just talk about the next problem of online sports betting and I game in the U.S., is all you have to do is look internationally and all the, the incremental regulatory things that come. There will be more regulatory things that come, more responsible betting, gaming limits. Like this is not just like getting to a state, agree on your tax rate, you're set and done, it doesn't change. Trust me, the bigger the business gets, the more regulatory scrutiny there's going to be, the more safety there's going to be, as there should be for, 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 for betters. So I think um, it's the betting companies, the states, the sports property's responsibility to keep making this better and safer for fans. And I think you're in the early days of this. Like, I think, you know, right now, you know, there are several markets, you know, um, in the, I think it's either the Netherlands or Belgium right now, where they just said you have to get out of the market to get relicensed to now become legal. And now all the limitations I have to bet. In the UK, there's new betting limits that are being placed in place. So like, there's gonna be lots of things that happens like that. Um, you know, in the U.S. over time as well. So that would be the next problem. So when we think about the U.S. business, we take a really long-term view. Do we think this is going to be a big and good business? Yes. Do we want to have a real market share of it? Absolutely. But we think there's going to be a lot of headaches in the near term. Like, we don't think this is a, you know, we don't think this is like a, you know, a painless business over the next couple of years. We think there's going to be a lot of pain in play. Do you think sports betting is changing what fandom means Number one, and just what's what's kind of your view on how the fan, the sports fan has evolved over the last several years? For me, I remember when I was when I was a kid, it was all about the team Um, and it was, you know, say it was my Sixers or my Mets, whatever. And I was obsessed and it was all about that jersey winning. Now it seems to be like sports betting has taken the interest in sports away from that to a certain extent. I think socials has changed the stories around individual players. 
Where, where do you see it and where do you see it going? Yeah, so I, I don't think anyone's love for their own team, the players of that team, is diminished. I think it's there and stronger than ever. I think what's incremental is that um, sports betting has brought – it's very good for viewership. I think one of the reasons you're seeing good viewership numbers now is sports betting is helping it. People are watching more product, whether it's through social, whether it's through digital, whether it's through you know linear – People are more, you know, um, into watching their sports than they've ever been. And so I think, you know, to me, I love seeing people used, used to just be a fan like you. They like their Philadelphia Sixers. Now they're fans of, you know, um, LeBron James and Steph Curry. And they follow players. And they follow and they bet different teams. All of that, I think, is great for sports. Look, I'll tell you one thesis I love. Sports is a great thesis to invest in. We just had to say, is there a lot of success in sports? And I've been saying this for a long time. There's a lot of momentum in sports right now because there's a lot of good things happening in sports. So um, I believe that, um, you know, when, when people are seeing the TV ratings down, like I'm saying, you, you need to look at not, that's like looking at a retailer sales. If you don't look at e-commerce, but you only look at brick and mortar, you have to look at it together. You need to look at like kind of fans interaction with, with, with sports overall. So social media is incredibly important. I'll tell you where I get all of my sports media from, all, all my sports content, social media. I watch highlights. That's what I'm consuming. Okay, other than Sixers game, that's it. But is that, I mean, if you look at the dollars for sports and you were an owner, a partial owner up and up until recently, the bread is really buttered on those game rights, those full game rights. Yeah. And as viewers move away from watching full games, is, is that good for the business? Yeah, so I can tell you that one, viewership is strong. Two, the only valuable asset left on, on, on for sport for, for, for TV is sports, is live sports. And that's why you say live sports dominate. I mean, dominate all of the ratings. So I can tell you when the NBA looks at its sports rights or baseball looks at sports rights, or NFL looks at sports rights, they're seeing nothing but incremental um, value coming over time. Now, are there certain broken parts of like, is the RSN model broken? Absolutely. Okay. But is sports rights overall going to be more valuable going forward than they are today? They will be. And by the way, you have – and look, we look in a perfect world, we, we would have liked to be the only – we would have liked to invent streaming and had exclusivity on it and had all sports streams for fanatics. Unfortunately, we weren't that smart. Um, but, like, look, you got a lot of new companies entering. Look, look what Apple just did with MLS. You know, very smart for both companies. You know, I think, you know, there are a lot of digital companies that I think, you know, Amazon's a great player here. Apple's going to be a great player here. I think over time, some of the other digital companies, even Netflix and said they're never going to get into sports. They're going to be in sports soon enough. You, you have to because you need the audience. Let's shift gears since you bring up sports media. Um, let's go to the biggest brand in sports media historically, ESPN. What is, what do, Michael, what do you think ESPN means to a consumer in 2022? The brand. Well, yeah, well, let me say what I, I'd say ESPN really means is they, they ESPN still has... I think a third of all U.S. sports content. So they have great sports content. So if you're a real sports fan, you need ESPN. Okay, it's a it's it's a great product. Now, could that change over time potentially? And you know, when you see something like you know MLS moving, you know, in a direct to consumer model with an Apple, that's got to raise the eyebrows for a Disney. But absolutely, you know, to me, ESPN is the most important place. If I'm going to go watch sports media, I'm going to watch it today because they have so much great content today. Okay, but, but that's but that's what I want to. But I, but I want to tie right back to what you just said. It's the place you go to watch live games, correct? Like that's what you think of, or what that's what you think consumers think of ESPN today as. So it's just it is. It's not where that. like when I grew up, it was where we watched Sports Center, right? It's like where you got your information. You're telling me you're getting all of your information. I think where most sports fans are today, they're getting it from social media. Yeah, and by the way, now by the way, a lot of that's where ESPN on, on on social media. I mean, ESPN is. One of my favorite places to get highlights on, 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 on social media. But if you're asking me the question, what do I think someone thinks? Why is someone paying, you know, you know, whatever they're paying for ESPN? They're buying it because they want to watch live sports. Correct. And so the idea is like Walt watches Peacock because that's where he watches his EPL games on Saturday mornings. And that's right. Right. Like it, it's wherever the live game is. And so the, the brand just means it's a place where those live games are quote unquote stored. It doesn't have a consumer. Like it doesn't have a brand. Like, I guess the question is, is like, when you think of fanatics, when I say the word fanatics to a consumer, what do you want? What do you think they think today? And what do you want them to think in three years? 
Sure. Today, what I think they think is, oh, that's the place where I get my jerseys or my T-shirts or I get, you know, if I'm a sports fan, that's where I get my merchandise from. That's all they think about today. What I want them to think about in five years is, oh, my God, Fanatics is this beloved brand. I get anything digitally there. I want to, you know, well, I want to get my merchandise. I want to get my collectibles. I want to bet on my sports. I want to watch sports. I want to do three new things we haven't thought about yet. Like, I love this brand. I get anything digitally I need from that. That's so, what I want a fan to think in five years. So let me just ask one more and then um, we'll shift a little bit. You know, in India, Disney just essentially gave up IPL rights, uh, cricket yeah. rights to Viacom 18, which is essentially Geo and James yeah. Murdoch and team. Uh, to me, it just sort of proves if you have capital, you can basically become a powerhouse in digital media, sorry, digital sports streaming, the same way Apple and Amazon are now entering the game. I mean, I don't think, you know, no one thought five years ago that Amazon would have Thursday night football. And so I, I don't agree with that. I okay. think that the NFL thought that they would have Thursday night football. I think we thought they'd have Thursday night football. I think there are a lot of people that thought they would. I, I would tell you that certainly my belief is this cycle of deals that are being done right now are probably the last cycle of deals that will be primarily linear. I think going forward, they're going to be a lot more digitally based, which I think is the question you're asking. I'm, I'm asking, it's just money, right? So at the end of the day, it's big it's money. money. As well. it's, so, it, listen, let me show you who the sports properties are most. The, the, the sports properties want two things. They want audience and they want money. Okay? That's what they are. They want reach and they want money. Because they want to reach as many fans as they can and they want money. Okay? And, and so- Apple's got, Apple's got Apple those, and Amazon have a lot of money. And it, they do. They got, they got a lot of reach, they, which is why they're very formidable. They have reached too, but I think it's a different mindset when you go onto Amazon.com or go onto Prime Streaming Service than it is when you hop onto to television and you're in a kind of lean back experience. And discovering sports there was in in that casual way brought in the more casual fan. Now it feels like everything for sports has to be lean forward where you're going there specifically to watch the game because you have to find it. So, so let me tell you, and that's why we think at Fanatics, we have the biggest opportunity in the world. And the reason we think we can create one of the most valuable companies in the world, and certainly, you know, hopefully we can create the most valuable company in sports and one of the most valuable companies in technology. There's not another company that's working on building, you know, you asked me what I want Fanatics to be in five years and you say, how do I make this the beloved brand to hundreds of millions, maybe even one day billions of sports fans digitally say, I get everything I need digitally from us. And what do we do? We started in merchandise. We could have this really strong leadership position. Then we went to collectibles. We have this really strong leadership position. So you asked me up front, what do I want to do? I want big TAMs. So we, we need to be able to make at least a billion dollars in the category of profit for us to even be in the, the space. So that's what we think about for a space. But we think we have this massive opportunity to give and delight the digital sports fan with, you know, anything they want digitally. And that's a really big opportunity. And of course, over time, that should include me for us. But I got to tell you something. I still think I'm a young guy. I hope to be doing this in 30 or 40 years. Okay. And so for me, everything doesn't happen overnight. We got to keep, you know, we're three great businesses today. We got to keep putting strength in those businesses. And, you know, maybe we don't do anything for media for six years or eight years. But at the end of the day, the rights generally get sold in, in three or five year cycles, sometimes seven years. You know, you can always buy these rights. So for us, what we need to do is build a great foundation in our merchandise business, in our collectibles business, in the gaming business. And, um, you know, over time, we think we'll add more, you know, business lines to that, you know, to, to, to delight our digital sports fans. But do you, do you think you're going to you do think that one day you'll have the appetite to compete with these big media giants that you're talking about for sports rights and potentially do the you know, kind of loss leading deals that come with bidding on U.S. sports? Yeah. So I, let me say two things. One, I always joke with people, but if you ask me, you know, I grew up in the merchandise business and I competed by, against a bunch of you know companies that I had a lot of confidence against. Um, you know, you can run that progression. The people that you least want to compete with are people that are called Amazon or Google or Facebook, or Netflix, these are Disney, these are big and scary companies. Okay, from my perspective, what we have is a very unique proposition where I can get more out of a customer than anybody else because I have this entire set of digital products to sell them. So for me, when you talk about CAC, customer comes in, 
and we spend 19 hours to acquire, you know, 100 million customers each in the um, in, in, in the merchandise business, I can then sell them collectibles, sell them gaming, sell them medium. If I acquire a media customer, I'm not looking at just the value I got from medium saying, well, how much did I get out of them for uh, merchandise? How much did I get out of them for gaming? How much did I get out of them for collectibles? What else did I get out of them? So that's what makes us so unique is the ability to better monetize the customer. Who's the single best company doing that? Amazon, for sure. Okay, Amazon knows how to, they bring a customer, they monetize them across their ecosystem of merchandise and, and media. Um, I think in sports, we could potentially be the best company doing that in a decade from now. Okay, can I just come back? Um, sorry to reverse, because, and right now Rich is, I don't want to step on his toes here as his Mr. Media uh, King, but... <laughs> But um, but Apple is a company that um, that I know relatively well in the amount of money that they generate and have um, and can spend. Uh, and then Amazon, you said yes, money. You think earlier you said yes, money. So where does that leave ESPN? I mean, do you think they have the appetite to actually spend? Can they afford even not to try and compete with companies that have massive amounts of capital that that want to and perhaps to a certain extent need to enter this market to get a recurring revenue stream going? Yes. So look, I have a lot of respect for ESPN. Jerry Patero runs. It's a great guy. He's a good friend of mine. You know, I've got to know the CEO a little bit of Disney. And I think these guys, look, they have a, you know, I think they're really focused on delivering a great product for sports fans. What I will tell you is they were in a business a decade ago that made a lot more money because it was a lot less competitive. Those days are over. So the cost of acquiring rights in the future, you know, let me tell you the winners. Sports properties because they got way more bidders today. They used to have sure. five bidders. You used to have ESPN, CBS, NBC, Fox. You're you dodging know. the question though. Like, what is where does that where does that lead? So going, going forward to Good maintain attempt. rights, you're gonna you, you know if if ESPN, you know, I don't know whatever. I mean, people know the number. They used to make five yeah. or six billion dollars in the heyday. Those days are done. Okay. Now the question is, but it's still good to make money versus no money. And so I like that business a lot better than losing money in online sports betting, right? I mean, in the U.S. and today's market. So what I would say is they're going to have to do what they need to do to continue to maintain rights because that's still Got a business that throw up a lot of money, just money throw up less money than it did historically. Got it. So thank you. So and by the way, I think look, I think again, you know, Disney is a, you know it's a great company, and you know I think if you ask you know Disney, they tell you the same thing. I don't think they're not saying hey, we're going to make five or six billion dollars off ESPN anymore. Those days are gone. Um, we've got a question from Cheryl Lynn. Um, that I think is a good industry question that sort of speaks to everything that you look at. Do you think sports fandoms eroding as younger generations are interested in gaming and other media? And how do you build interest in sports for kids and younger ages? Yeah. So I actually don't think it's eroding. I think, um, it, look, obviously if you look at the NFL, baseball, hockey, you see the fan is getting older. So, you know, I'm not oblivious to any of that. Um, what I will tell you is um, media is being consumed in new ways today. I try to consider myself young, even though I'm unfortunately turning 50 in the next couple of weeks. So maybe I'm not young anymore. But, um, you know, I consume everything through, again, through social medias where I get all my, you know, kind of highlights, you know, my sports content other than, than live games. Um, I think... Is gaming important to the younger generation? Absolutely. Is that an opportunity for fanatics? Definitely. Do I think that sport? I think, look, I have been very bullish on sports consistently for the last decade on sports ownership because I think that, you know, A, you've got media that's going to keep growing. going to be reinvented, but it's going to keep growing. doesn't mean it grows in the same way it's grown. might be with people like Apple, people like Amazon, people like fanatics over time. Um, but I'm very bullish on long term. I also think, one of the greatest things is to be an entrepreneur within sports. Like, think about what we're thinking about. What are big digital businesses in sports? There's a lot of ideas that, you know, we haven't even surfaced yet that are going to get created over the future. So we like being kind of at the epicenter of all that. It's like anything that happens that's big digital in sports should be fanatics long term. When you said the one place that we had heard um, fanatics associated with in terms of sports rights was in uh RSNs. Why specifically were you interested um, in the RSNs, and what would you do with with the RSNs if you know Diamond goes bankrupt and and those properties yeah. become available? So first off, our job at Fanatics is to look at everything in sports. 
So we look at everything. At this point, if we look at something, sometimes the people put the rumors out there to try to get interest from other parties. So yes, if we analyze the RSM business, absolutely. Make, let me tell you what our conclusion was. It's a broken business model as is, and we have no interest in buying it to then break it. We want to let it break and then be on the other side of it. And so if you think about that, that local sports, right? Believe that content is valuable. Absolutely. Do I believe I can better monetize that sports fan than um, it's being monetized today? I do. Do I believe that, that we need to rush into that? Absolutely not. We have all the time in the world. And the good thing with us, if we do a good job in the merchandise business, we do a good job in the collectibles business, we do a good job in the uh, gaming business, we're going to have a lot of free cash flow, billions of dollars a year to go out and invest, to buy other things over time. So we don't need to build everything. We're going to build certain things. We'll buy other things. What it needs to be, we need to make sure when you say, does this fit within the finance ecosystem? We only do direct-to-consumer digital sports businesses. So what are we interested in? Direct-to-consumer digital sports businesses with big TAMs that we can differentiate. All right. I think we're almost and down. If it to... doesn't fit through that, we're not interested. I think we're almost down to some rapid-fire stuff. <laughs> A topic, a, a topic near and dear to my heart, Sunday ticket, because then I can finally disconnect from DirecTV. Who's getting the Sunday ticket? I, I, I don't, uh, it's, that's not appropriate for me to comment on. Oh, I think I, I, I thought it was just a guess. I didn't know you actually knew. Yeah, well, I, I don't know, but here's what, look, oh. obviously everyone knows, you know, we have a massive relationship there, but here's what I would tell you. The NFL has lots of options. I think it's out yes, there that do. Amazon and Apple are both interested in. I think DirecTV would like to maintain it. I think there's other companies. So I tell you what, it's nice to be the NFL and have all the options there. Um, real quick on, you know, how you, was that for good non How was that for good non That was, that was pretty good. <laughs> well, we're, we're, hoping, for, we're hoping for Apple. Yeah, we, want, I want Apple. we want Apple. <laughs> we're betting on Apple. But real quick on um, your kind of concerns about sports betting. Does ESPN getting into sports betting make the situation even worse and delay your entry? Or do you think ESPN won't actually get into it? Um, I think that ESPN has a strong brand, but I think they have none of the operating, um, you know, necessities to do this themselves. And I also think every time I talk to a big company CEO, I've been fingerprinted for 50 hours already. I've gone through... You know, every time we do an application, it's five feet big. Our board's going through it. It's torturous to get, you know, licensed. When I talk to someone who makes, you know, I think what's Disney, $20 billion a year in, in, in EBITDA. You know, you ask these guys, you know, do you want to be in the game business and go through the process? Most of them are like, hell no. Okay. I think you hear the same thing out of Amazon, out of, you know, any of these big companies. It's just, it's, it's too much work. The juice isn't worth the squeeze for these big companies. So ultimately, do I think they're an operator themselves? I do not think so. Can you just comment quickly um, on NIL and how big of an opportunity that is for you guys? Yeah, it's, it's massive. I mean, if you really think about it, we couldn't sell. So college this year is, um, let me just give you a clean year. College next year is probably a billion-dollar business for us. We didn't sell merchandise with a player's name or number really until now. So we're going to be the primary beneficiary for merchandise, the primary beneficiary for collectibles um, for NIL. So I think it's a huge opportunity. And, and, you know, if you think about it from a fan's perspective, fans are dying for it. The same way you want to buy, you know, a Russell Wilson jersey or a Tom Brady jersey. You want to get your favorite collegiate players, you know, jersey or trading card. So, yeah, it's a big, it's a, it's a massive opportunity. Okay. Then two rapid fire questions now. One, will Ben Simmons play another NBA game? Yes. <laughs> okay. I can't wait. <laughs> Me neither. I saw, I, saw, I saw Ben last week. I ran into him. He looked good. He, he actually looked pumped up. He told me he was going to dominate last, next year. So I, I said, go out and do it. I want him to dominate. I want the best for Ben. I like Ben personally. Okay. And then two. When are you going to be a public company that all the investors listening to can invest in? Yeah, I think we'll be a public company in the, you know, kind of midterm. I think we're, we're in no rush. We generate real free cash flow. Business is growing really nicely. We have investors who are, you know, thrilled to be our partners and we're thrilled to have them as our partners. You know, my best, you know, I'm, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but it's not long term and it's not this year. That sounds like the music. I hear the music coming. Let's go. <laughs> we're buying, Rich. 
I had to do that for you guys. I had to do that for you guys. That is what you call teamwork. Seven. Oh, we're not up to that yet. Uh, Michael, I know you got another meeting. That was amazing. And we really appreciate you taking the time. And um, it was just great. And we'll have you back because I'm assuming based on the way you think about each year, every year has to be better than the next. So there'll be a lot more to talk about as we move into 23. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be with you guys. And uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much. Number one.